Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, and this podcast is being recorded for future history, if any. Yeah, so true. Mm. Someday, after the aliens have destroyed civilization, they're going to discover awesome movie year <laughs> and realize what has been lost in the end of humanity. They'll listen to this season and they'll say, Jason would have really liked it if we would have destroyed the films of 1953. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> but we are about to destroy the films of 1953 because we're here at our season finale of our season on the films of 1953. And Dave, I believe this is our 200th episode you told us at one point. Is that correct? Oh, wow. You know what? I forgot about that, but I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, now you have to count and we'll have to, in the epilogue, make sure if that's true or not. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just say that it's true because nobody's going to fact check us. So congratulations to us yeah. for... Yeah reaching 200 episodes and as always in our season finale we have our audience choice episode we present you our listeners with three related choices for what we're going to talk about in the season finale and since it's 1953 we couldn't leave the 1950s without talking about sci-fi is one of the major genres and the style of 1950s sci-fi is very well known so we presented three Alien and monster attack films, including It Came from Outer Space, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and the movie that we are going to talk about, which is The War of the Worlds. And I, you know, it's really not that surprising, I suppose, that that one, if only because that's a name that people are going to be the most familiar with. I yeah, I would have thought it would. I mean, there's this thing is out of life since the uh, first publication of the novel in 1898, H.G. Wells. And it keeps finding new lives as uh, it's a, a war on all types of media, apparently, Josh. Yeah, this is one of the most frequently adapted sci-fi stories. And this version is not the most famous at this point, I'm sure, as we'll talk about later. But, but one of the most famous still, even after all this time, it is the first movie adaptation of the 1898 H.G. Wells novel, uh, before this, most famously, there is a radio adaptation from uh, 1938 by Orson Welles, which is well known for its uh, probably slightly exaggerated within pop culture effect of people thinking it was a real radio broadcast and the world was really being attacked by aliens. And Jason, you actually gave this a listen, right? I did listen to it. Uh, and, and I do agree that is easily got to be the most famous adaptation even though the kids say, oh, I don't understand, it didn't happen three years ago. Shut up, kids. Uh, anyway, um, but no, the Orson Welles broadcast. Uh, Josh, I don't know that because I remember even in school, we had heard that that broadcast had such a power on people that they did think that aliens were invading, right? right. Um, but the, I listened to it this week. Uh, while I was driving back from a road gig in Kingman, Arizona. You know, I don't like to brag about the comedy, but sometimes, Josh, you do big things. You got to throw it out there. So, mm -hmm. um, But what was interesting is the first 40 minutes are that broadcast. And then the last 20 minutes are like them, uh, like in the days after and them saying, you know, this is how we're going to save society. And then the last three minutes are like, hey, guys, this was just a joke. Don't 
they'll get all up in arms on us or anything. But I guess those first 40 minutes just had people in hysterics. And they're so well done because it's like it comes in and it's like, um, you know, from the Rainbow Room in New York City. It's Raul Montenegro and his big band, right? And then they're playing like classic, you know, 1930s style big band music. And they keep interrupting with these bulletins like, uh, you know, seen in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, a media strikes the ground and like, you know, coming in from Fresno, California, four more. And then like they just build it so brilliantly. It's pretty great. But what's interesting uh, also, Josh, is like, but you and I were talking, we know that Orson Welles had this contract for the RKO players, the radio hour, right? And um, I mean, he's got a very distinct voice, right? So yes. he's playing like one of the leads in this thing. It, it, it surprised me that none of the people were like, no, wait, that's just Orson Welles playing a professor. Right. And I would imagine that there are probably people who listen to that show every week who are fans of it, who would have tuned in and realized that that's what it was. But other people maybe who are just flipping the radio dial, seeing what's on the radio tonight, um, might've thought it, as they were passing it by, it's a real news report and we're going to pay attention to what this is. So I, I do think that there's a, a level of exaggeration that that's something that it's such a good story. The idea that this fooled all these people, that it's probably gotten bigger and bigger over time, but I'm sure it did fool a lot of people in reality. So I also watched, I mean, this was a good week for us as far as like, if we had time to watch or listen to things, cause there are so many adaptations and not just adaptations. Like, you know, we covered independence day, like in right. our 90s, 60s and so many things that are influenced by this. I watched a movie from 2017 called brave New Jersey about a town called lullaby, New Jersey, where supposedly it was all a true story. They have the accounts of, the, the townsfolk listening to the broadcast and going into mass hysterics and getting ready to fight, um, you know, the uh, the aliens when they arrive. So that uh, I, I thought wasn't very good, but I highly recommend <laughs> the broadcast, um, which is all over YouTube and the Internet of the 1938 radio hour. It's it's a really fun listen. Yeah, I had meant to listen to it and 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 didn't, but um, I'm I'm curious to do so, and I'm glad that you did because um, it's nice that you got to check out something that you liked, as we've talked about this season. Yeah, well, hey, I'm sure we'll get to the uh, 2005 Spielberg remake, which uh, is better than I even remember when we saw it in the theater. So yeah, um, so but before that, we're gonna probably talk about something um, that you didn't like, but. <laughs> People in 1953 did like this film. Um, it This was sort of confusing for me to read. And, and box office figures, as we keep saying from this time period, are always a bit unclear. But Wikipedia claims that this grossed $2 million on its budget of $2 million, which does not sound like it was a success. But it also says that it was a hit. So I but assume... But Josh, maybe it could have been if the aliens had come to kill Jesus. <laughs> call back to our episode on the robe yeah maybe that was what it needed to be uh, a bigger hit but um it seems like it was a success in some way it was nominated for three oscars and it won the oscar for best special effects it was also nominated for best sound and best editing um and critics were really taken with this film um in part uh, based on, as I think has come up in, in multiple movies this season, on sort of the technological achievement of this film, the special effects that are showcased here. So uh, A.H. Weiler in the New York Times 
said while maybe, twirling his mustache. Yes, sadly, the last time we're going to hear from old A.H. Weiler for a while, I think uh, he said, make no mistake about it. Science fiction, like comic books, is a part of our culture. And George Pal, who produced this latest amalgam of fact and fantasy, is no tyro in this field. Like his previous sorties into interplanetary space, Destination Moon, and When Worlds Collide, The War of the Worlds is, for all of its improbabilities, an imaginatively conceived, professionally turned adventure, which makes excellent use of technicolor, special effects by a crew of experts, and impressively drawn backgrounds. Equally important is the fact that director Byron Haskin, working from a tight script by Barry Lyndon, has made this excursion suspenseful, fast, and on occasion, properly chilling. George Powell was nominated for Academy Awards in Best Short Subject and Best Cartoon for seven consecutive years. Yeah, he had an interesting career. He's a Hungarian filmmaker who started making those animated short films and then in the 50s transitioned into this producer of science fiction movies, which is kind of what he's best known for, but had this whole other career before that. Right. And Pal and Haskin, it's like they had their own little company, right? They all worked together and these guys did a lot of movies together. And George Pal referenced in uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Josh. All right. Cool. Yeah, he was, I feel like his name was known. I mean, even though Byron Haskin is the director, George Powell is the name that's mentioned far more often in all the reviews that I found. And he right. had that name recognition as like producer of science fiction. movies. Right. It's like, you know, Jason, it's a Blumhouse film, right? Right. Exactly. Yes. He's known for that. So Jason Blum probably going to produce a remake of The War of the World. I mean, that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? It yeah. absolutely would. It absolutely would. So Richard L. Coe in The Washington Post said, the War of the Worlds is, to put it gently, terrific. Mm. A real wingding of the spatial school currently riding high. Adapted from H.G. Wells's famed tale in an extremely deft screenplay by Barry Lyndon, this has the best trick photography seen in years. Shown on a wide screen and equipped with the most effective stereophonic sound I've yet run across, this will capture both adults and small fry alike. While it's amusing to think that Wells's old yarn holds up so well in its new guise, the chief reason is clearly George Powell's massive production. The essence of all this, of course, is fear. And by jacking up the Wellsian gadgets to the stuff that keeps our comic books rolling, the War of the Worlds makes the most of keeping you on the edge of your seat. What in the whiz-bang? <laughs> I knew you would appreciate the use of uh, the... the, the Old-timey slang there. Stay golden, Nelko. Uh, Josh, you know, one of the themes we keep coming back to in this season is the use of technology to enhance the sensory experience. And uh, we talked about 3D and everything, and they wanted to do this in 3D, the third act, but I guess they scrapped it. Yeah, it was too difficult or expensive or something. I mean, as we talked about in our House of Wax episode, 3D was really a new thing at this point. It was just starting out, so you know, difficult to navigate, maybe easier with a smaller production like House of Wax. And now that you mentioned House of Wax, I think we can agree my uh, my impression of Vincent Price is probably more Orson Welles than Vincent Price. Yes, probably so. <laughs> All this green penis. 
Do you remember that? So from the critic when they would always show Orson Welles commercials and he was advertising peas and he said, mmm, look at all this delicious green penis. <laughs> I don't remember that, but that is classic. <laughs> that is. Those uh those those compilations of Orson Welles outtakes from commercials where he's incredibly drunk and just like baffled and yelling at people are 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 entertaining to watch. It's Damien Chazelle's next movie. Yeah, I'll see that. I'll see that. So uh, finally, Edwin Schallert in the Los Angeles Times said, The Great War of the Worlds is here at last. It has been long enough arriving. But for those who will be seeing it at its first public showing here, this George Powell production will carry impact as probably the finest of science fiction thrillers. The scope in general of the picture is tremendous for it seems to neglect none of the important elements that might figure in a situation involving such a phenomenal and fantastic assault from another world. In all respects, the War of the Worlds represents a maximum effort of the fictional scientific type, which redounds not only to the credit of Pal as the main coordinator of the entire Technicolor enterprise, but to Byron Haskin as director and scenarist Barry Lyndon. So, Barry Lyndon, uh, you know, we always think of the Kubrick movie, right? So, right. Well, which is based on a real historical figure who is the, the namesake of this guy. Right. It's, a, it's a pseudonym for this right. writer. His name is not actually Barry. And, and he spells it differently than the right. Kubrick with like a, It's so. like Barry Lyndon. Yeah. E yeah. And an accent aigu. Mm. Well, Lyndon, not just a successful screenwriter, he was really known as a playwright, Josh, before that, uh, I have never seen The Man in Half Moon Street, but uh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it is also interesting that he was this sort of literary guy and ended up writing these George Powell science fiction movies. But I'm sure attempting to bring some level of, I mean, it is based on famous literature and attempting to bring some level of sophistication to the, to the writing that's beyond just the spaceship shooting lasers or whatever. Right. and. Byron Haskin, the director, uh, he had four Oscar nods for his work in special effects, uh, where he ran the Warner Brothers department with Nathan Levinson, who shared those uh, uh, nominations with him. And uh, he made movies like Robinson Crusoe on Mars, Treasure Island, and I Walk Alone with our friend Burt Lancaster. So we don't have a third act for this um, podcast because I just ruined it. <laughs> well, I mean, Thank a lot you. of that is is their background first, you know, Um Haskins started as a special effects artist, you know, George Powell started as this director of animation before they ended up here. And it makes sense that someone like Byron Haskin, who was an Oscar winning special effects artist, would end up as the director of this, these kinds of movies. Yeah, I was thinking of like Tim Miller from Deadpool when I was right. like, who would be the equivalent of that right now? So. Yeah, I think there's definitely I mean, he's maybe the most famous, but there's definitely a pipeline for those uh, kind of uh, careers where people start as in special effects and end up directing action-y spectacle kind of films because it, they know how to coordinate that stuff. It makes sense just as much as someone who started anywhere else. I agree. So Jason, you've been remarkably restrained in your opinion of this movie thus far. Well, Josh, I had never seen it. I mean, that's what we always talk about here. Had you right. ever seen this? I had seen the Spielberg one and uh, obviously, yeah, no, this was my first time watching it. There are some some uh, things I liked, uh, the effects mainly, and then some major filler in here as well, I thought. that just like slowed the whole thing down. It does get slow at parts, even though it is a short movie. It's only yeah. 85 minutes. 
Um, I had seen this movie actually in a theater in a way that um, I believe we talked about in one of our Star Wars episodes at the TCM Festival, Ben Burt, who is famous for all the sound effects work that he did on the Star Wars films, as well as another effects artist whose name I've forgotten that I probably should have looked up. But they at the TCM Festival would do these presentations where they would show a film that is well known as sort of a landmark in special effects. And before showing it would do all these demonstrations of how the effects work. And I remember going to this one and they actually had like this big saw that they would, you know, hit with a hammer or something to demonstrate that that kind of vibrating sound effect that they use in this film. So it was cool to see that presentation before the film and to really appreciate all this kind of old school analog effort that went into creating the special effects before watching the movie. So I think that enhanced my appreciation of it at the time. And I don't remember necessarily all the details of that presentation, but it was still a bit in mind watching this. And I do think, yeah, the special effects here, even though maybe to our eyes, they don't look that sophisticated. I think a lot of them hold up pretty well and they look really impressive for 1953. I agree. And they're fun too, you know? So like they, they don't take you out of the movie. Um, That sound that you're talking about, Josh, like, you talk about a sound that it is ahead of its time, you know, like, cause ev- now any movie you watch where there's like a predator, right? Anytime that there's like that, that predator that gets close, what do we always hear? Right. And then yeah. silence. So that's, um, that's a pretty cool way to see it with that demonstration. Yeah. You can see a lot of what they were doing here. Um, used, right. In, uh, <laughs> in further productions. So Dave, had you ever seen this? No, I don't think so. Um, I, obviously, I've seen the Spielberg one as well. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. The, the effects were the, the especially you know, fun thing to watch in this. Right. Yeah, certainly. I think that's one of the reasons that people would still watch this movie is to appreciate that. And, and it's been restored really well. At a time, for a time, apparently, it was in poor condition and it wasn't reflecting the effects well. But watching this on streaming now, it looked gorgeous. So whatever that was done does it justice i think yeah so anything else on the background of this film you want to talk about jason uh obviously hg wells uh orson wells father so that was nice (laughs) yeah no no orson wells added the extra e to his name yeah uh, (laughs) like barry linden you know yes no i got nothing else on the background here all right fair enough well we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the war of the worlds Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this finale of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about audience choice winner, The War of the Worlds. And Jason, you you seem less harsh on this film maybe than some of the other 1953 releases. So did you enjoy it? Uh, I thought it was all right. I didn't love it. It kind of just falls apart in parts for me. Like, you know, there's so much narration, like even at the beginning, it's like uh, the aliens couldn't have come to this planet for this reason, but they also couldn't have gone to this planet for this reason. Like they literally go through all nine and we just got, I think like I was saying the placement of this episode this season might've heard it for me because we just got done with Ed Wood, you know, and like Glenn or Glenn and it's like, Hey, let me fill 15 minutes with stock footage and narration. And I felt like there was a lot of that. Uh, the acting was a little hokey, but uh, the effects were just great. And um, there were some sequences 
that obviously uh, Spielberg references in in his film that I I really liked as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there isn't that much. There is a lot of narration at the at the top of the film. The narration by we should credit uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick. Um, who does the narration. And some of that narration is taken directly from the Wells novel. And um, and the part where, as you say, they go through all nine, I think they leave one of the planets Venus. Out. I don't know yeah. why. Um, it's apparently, I read it. I don't know if this was in Wikipedia or somewhere else, but apparently because, of course, this is pre-space travel. And so all of that is based on like telescope images. And I guess for some reason they weren't familiar enough with Venus. Uh, so you're saying it's because we hadn't been to Venus yet, Josh? Right. Well, because we hadn't sent probes out mm. into space or anything like that. All that green Venus. Sorry. Yeah. And we <laughs> couldn't uh, we couldn't see it yet. But I mean, it is it is a little maybe excessive. But on the other hand, it's also a great showcase of, of effects too. all these beautiful matte paintings and stuff that they use in that sequence of showing you all the different planets look really good. And, you know, to jump way later, the use of stock footage, which is footage from World War II that they use as evidence of the destruction of the planet by the Martians, I thought that gave it this extra kind of resonance. And it, it's it's really like, despite the super hokey ending, is really kind of bleak for a while. That is, you know, one of those themes that we keep coming back to, how much World War II is still affecting the filmmaking of this year, right? Right. And the mood of everything. As for those matte paintings, Josh, that was uh, Chesley Bonestell, an astronomical artist who did these um, matte paintings, who sounds just like a very interesting, you know, kind of, uh, like they call him an astronomical artist. I don't know if he was a futurist or what, but definitely fits in this world of sci-fi. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and I think this is a movie where they are within the context of this obviously fantastical story attempting to uh, reflect some amount of scientific accuracy. I think that's the reason that they didn't include Venus because it's like, well, we only want to talk about things that we are knowledgeable about in reality to describe these planets, even though, of course, Martians are not real. Well, you don't know that, Josh. You don't know that. I guess not. Wait, no, that's, do you not believe that there's other life out there somewhere, Josh? Oh, maybe somewhere, but I I think we've studied Mars extensively enough now that we can say there's probably not any Martians. Okay, right. You yeah, mean other transformers? Yeah. Transformers <laughs> on the, on Mars? Are there? That's where they're from. On? Yeah, yeah. No, they're from they're from. Uh, what is the name of their planet? Trans- it's voiced. Transform- it's voiced by Orson Welles in the Transformers animated movie. <laughs> One of the movies are from Transformation. Yeah, <laughs> All the Transformers fans are going to kill us now. Yeah, Josh. Obviously. Uh, those, uh, matte paintings, you know, when they like disintegrate a human being, when they shoot them with yeah. the, the rays, 144 separate mount paintings to create that effect. So you're right. Uh, you know, just really cool stuff they're doing here in the 50s. Yeah. I mean, and, and the kind of effort and the kind of artistry and technology that of course is not used anymore when they, we create special effects now that all this stuff would be done via computers, I think, and maybe a few practical effects with animatronics or something, but especially like the use of miniatures and stuff like none of that would be done that way now. Do you like the setting choice in the novel? Obviously, it's Victorian England, maybe London, which would have been cool. The city. Right. And then in um, in the Spielberg one, it's New Jersey to Boston, like very metropolitan. And here we're getting Southern California. But like, I feel like we're getting 
we're not getting like downtown LA or anything like that. You know, we're getting more of those kind of side uh, towns or whatnot, you know? So do, do, what did you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure part of it is just a practical consideration that this is a Hollywood movie, so they're shooting it in California. But I, I mean, I thought that was, it's not going to be set in Victorian London unless this was a British production or whatever. So it's given that it's basically like a default choice that that is probably not an artistic choice. I, I yeah, I thought it was effective that that small town setting it reminded me a little of the beginning of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind that we talked about. I think that had a similar yeah. kind of setting. So um, yeah, I mean, as as Jason, you're saying the the characters and the acting in this movie are pretty hokey. I mean, we get our main character who is this like uh, Doctor Clayton Forrester. Right. He's a he's a physics a physics professor, some kind of science professor at a fictional university played by Gene Barry. And then Sylvia Van Buren, the small town librarian played by Anne Robinson. And of course, they have to fall in love. And all of that is a bit. Yeah, none of that really works, does it? Yeah. And then Dr. Clayton Forrester, like in a few scenes, dresses like Dr. Clayton Forrester. And then a few scenes, he dresses like Clayton Forrester, bad boy on the streets, you know, or something yeah. like he's in one of those uh, Coppola, like Rumble Fish or the Outsiders movies from the early 80s, about the 50s or something. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an effort to, again, the the level of of sort of starkness that that comes later in this film, I think, is is somewhat impressive. And I think there's an effort to depict the unraveling, not just of like society, but of Clayton Forrester, this very buttoned up professor. Um, and when we get towards the end where he's frantically running through, when we do get finally like downtown LA or, a, you know, a backlot, a studio backlot that's meant to be downtown LA. Um, and he's sort of like running through these empty streets and he's lost Sylvia and he's frantic and he's dirty and he's bloody. And I, I feel like they're trying to get that. And maybe Gene Barry isn't quite good enough to convey the seriousness of that, but that's what they're aiming for. Well, and that's why the the Spielberg one is very effective because, you know, you use the keyword running. And when you need an actor to run, you hire Tom Cruise. You you do. That that is true. He is very good at that. And it, it's very distinctive. So. Scarlett and I were watching it, you know, and uh, I was like, Tom Cruise, that's Tom Cruise. He loves to run in the movies, in his movies. And then by the end of the movie, she's like, he does run a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're teaching your daughter the important aspects of cinema to be paying attention to as she watches movies. That's the last movie star, Scarlett. He, he, yeah. That's right. The last real movie star. Uh, so, Josh, you mentioned those characters. Really, I, I thought the only other notable character was uh, Sylvia Van Buren's uncle, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Collins, which is a great name. Right. Um, and like everyone else is pretty much interchangeable. I did like Paul Freeze as the radio reporter, you know, but but everything else is just kind of like there to be zapped. Right. Right, right. I mean, there's there's some military commander characters as well. Uh, Les Tremaine, who plays Major General Man, <laughs> just, yeah. just guy. Yeah. I, I'm guy, military yeah. guy. But he 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 shows up, and he's he's consistently throughout a lot of the movie as sort of the main commander of the military forces in the U.S. and the one who's trying to figure out how they can stop. The Martians. And and of course, again, spoiler, but one of the great things I think also about this story 
is that no one figures out how to stop the Martians, that humanity is completely helpless throughout this story. They throw everything they've got, they have guns, eventually they drop atomic bombs, and none of it works. And the end of the movie when they defeat the Martians is not that genius Dr. Clayton Forrester finally figured out how to do it, which is kind of what you expect, but that it happens completely by accident. And it may seem like a sort of deus ex machina, but on the other hand, it, it is how it happens in the novel. And I, I also feel like it, it is sort of a way to highlight how useless everyone is. Um, I felt that that had I read the novel, I could see like going on that journey and enjoying that, you know, but I, I when watching this movie. I wanted a protagonist to, you know, kind of help win the day and they didn't, you know. Uh, in that remake, they kind of do, but they also go with this ending as well, you know. But um, I mean, and then you know, we talk about like Independence Day, right? You got uh, uh, your your favorite actor, Josh uh, Randy Quaid, you know, jamming the rocket up there and everything. So, which they also kind of do in the remake of this. But I just felt like you know, we got our ass kicked in this thing here in America for an hour and twenty minutes by these alien invaders, you know. And this could just be Kingman talking, Josh. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I I did want a protagonist to help solve the problem, not just like, oh, now they're all dead and then we hear, as far as they traveled, the one thing they didn't count on was an atmosphere that wasn't theirs. You know, I wanted something a little more than that. Right. And I understand that. And it does feel very abrupt in this movie. And maybe it's slightly less abrupt in the novel. I don't know. I haven't read it. But I mean, just reading the summary of the novel, the, the protagonist of the book is even less proactive. Like I said, here you have Clayton Forrester as someone that you might expect to solve the problem, right? He's a right. scientist. He does figure out some important stuff. And the protagonist in the novel is just some guy. And it's just like him running around trying to find his wife as they've been separated and the Martians are busy attacking. And so, I mean, I think that's even more of an everyman kind of figure versus here where they're trying to give you some of that. I think what you're talking about, Jason, the protagonist who can do something, but they stick with the original ending. Well, I think even had like we had um, someone discover the idea of like, hey, they can't survive in this atmosphere, like to have gone with a plan of that type of uh, thing that would that would have done it for me. You know, just I just needed a little more there. Right. No. And that's fair. And and I think for me, I didn't necessarily need that. I would have maybe needed a little more time to process the idea that this has sort of happened by accident. I mean, once they see one dead Martian, it basically just immediately cuts to that narration, like you were saying, and then it's over. So, I mean, I think, and I don't remember, I didn't watch the Spielberg one recently. I saw it when it came out. I don't remember if there's more sort of time to process it at the end of that film. Yeah. Um, well, there's like a big action sequence and then that, and then this explanation, but this explanation leads to the shield coming down on those uh, alien, you know, uh, what would you call those uh, riders or what nerf herders, if you will? I don't even know what you would call them, right? Like the, you know, the tripods. The, the right? tripods. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what they're called in the novel. Yeah. So, like, then the shield is down. So then they use like these kind of bazookas to blow them up and everything. But oh, yeah. So we had to get some extra action in there. Yeah. It's a Spielberg thing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just, I just, I was invested in the effects. Like, the best stuff is the stuff where the aliens just do the murders on people with the heat rays. And then when it's uh, like that slinking eye is going through the house to look at them and you get the view of the alien for one second, like 
that's all the best stuff in this movie. Right. And there is some, I think, good suspense in that sequence. And that's something that is taken from the novel that is also, I believe, in the Spielberg movie, the idea of them hiding out in this sort of half-destroyed house, not yeah. knowing what's going on. And, and then the aliens are showing up and almost finding them. Yeah. So in, in this one, it's just our two main characters, right? right? We do have a cameo, I think, at the end of the Spielberg movie as the parents yeah. of the yeah, mother. Yeah, they do. And then in that one, it's um, Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning. Very good at crying as a child in a movie. You know, I think, yes. we could, you know, Tom Cruise is to running as Dakota Fanning was to crying as a okay, child. Sure. But, um, you know, Tim Robbins is kind of like that, uh, you know, uh, survivalist who's ready to fight them off. And then there's all this like subplot of Cruise versus Robbins that isn't as good as the stuff of where it's them versus aliens, you know. So, uh, again, pluses and minuses. Right, right. And I think in both cases, whether it's it's what you're describing there in the Spielberg movie or here, the whole sort of romantic relationship between Sylvia and Clayton Forrester is something that has to be invented in order for there to be character development. Because in the book, again, just from reading summaries, like the characters don't even have names in the book. And so Wells is really not very interested in character development or in relationships or whatever. He's interested in the science aspect of it. He's interested in describing the Martians and their vessels and their weapons and what they do to the planet. And that's all cool that we can depict in special effects here. But I think in a movie, you really need to create characters that the audience can invest in. And maybe that's not something that they do super successfully here. Have you ever read any H.G. Uh, Wells books, Josh? I was trying to remember, and I, I want to say I might have read The Invisible Man as like a teenager or in middle school or something when I was getting into horror and sci-fi and I was like, oh, I should read the classics. I don't remember entirely. I definitely did not read The War of the Worlds, though. So did you read any Wells in, in school or anything? No, I didn't. You know, I like reading a lot now, but it's uh, I didn't much back then. But, I uh, do remember that, yes. Yeah, but now I... I did, I did the reading for both of us. Yeah. I've got you guys beat here because I've read The Time Machine. Oh! You guys know I don't read anything. Yeah, Josh, if Dave has us beat in a reading contest, we really have to Yeah, we've got to step up, I think. Yeah, because yeah, Dave, Dave, possibly that was the last book that Dave read. <laughs> yeah. And the first might, might have been. Um, <laughs> was that good? Dave, tell us about it. It was great. It was freaking weird as hell. And, you know, it's it's no wonder the movies don't really work out because it's just so strange. Like, yeah. everything is weird from page to page. We kind of like the last Invisible Man movie, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, was, of that. But yeah. Right. But you're talking about, have you seen the movies of The Time Machine, Dave? There was the, the 2000s one I saw, and I might have seen the much older version, but um, I do remember the 2000s one just not living up to it, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to read uh, some of this stuff. I mean, obviously, Wells is, I mean, and even at this point, you know, this this book already was 50 plus years old, and he is the, quote, father of science fiction. I mean, this, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, I mean, so many major, major classics of sci-fi that had been adapted already and continue to be adapted over and over again throughout history and continue, you know, I'm sure there'll be more in the future. So yeah, something I do like sci-fi and horror still. So, uh, you know, maybe I should uh, step up here and yeah. say, if, if Dave has done it, I mean, come on. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's literally how you should live your life. If Dave's done it, then I can probably do it. So. Yeah, seriously. Well, at least when it comes to reading books. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I didn't. So I was just wondering. But, um, but like I said, I like the radio broadcast a lot. 
So. Right. Yeah, I do want to listen to that. I was hoping to get to it and it just uh, it just got away from me. But um, it is cool that that is still so readily available and is this major early piece of Orson Welles's career. So and, um, and such a good job of adapting to the medium. Right. That's what Dave's talking about with the time machine. Which is, I just was looking it up. It's a John Logan script. John Logan's a great writer. It just uh, looked like it was a miss beyond that, perhaps. But, you know, what's so cool about the Wells thing is like that as a movie, like you wouldn't do that. But that as a radio play is just incredible. Right. I mean, would somebody make like a, what that's essentially like a found footage movie in radio is basically what it would be something that Wells has created. Like, would you make it that way as a movie with like news reports and, uh, you know, nowadays Cloverfield? we have, right. It's it's, it, would Cloverfield, be, it would be Cloverfield. Right? Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that, I love Cloverfield, but I don't know if uh-huh. it would work exactly the same way as yeah. real worlds. Yeah. But, uh, it is just, I mean, I look how long till we get, I'm sure there's other HG Wells stuff in development right now, but I'm, I guess we get another war of the worlds. Like we know there's been, we can talk about this in the next segment, but uh, there's been TV shows recently and everything on this thing. Right. And you're right. I mean, we joked about Jason Blum, but I could totally see him doing that. I mean, Jason Blum, in fact, did he not produce the invisible man, the most recent invisible man? And, uh, you know, I'm sure we could get another time machine or uh, Wells wrote like many dozens of books. So I'm sure there's some that haven't been adapted or haven't been adapted as much that some enterprising producer is going to reach back into. And so they can slap a famous name on it and make it into a movie. So should we rate this one, Josh? Yeah. You want to rate it out of uh, five uh, ray guns or something like that? Sure. Or tripods. Tripods. Yes. Five tripods. It got two and a half from me. I didn't love it. I enjoyed the, um, uh, like I said, the effects. There was just too much filler in here for me. Yeah, there is a lot of filler. I'm going to give it three. And I think I, I, I'm with you. The effects are the best part. There is some filler, but I felt like there was enough stuff that, like I was saying, really focuses on the bleakness of what's going on here for humanity. That's not just hokey 1950s romance or whatever that, that I, I appreciated that aspect of it. So it's, it's not a great movie, but I think it's a very interesting movie. So three from me, Dave. Uh, I'm going two and a half. And for the record, last week I gave Plan 9 from Outer Space three. So, so you make of that what you will. This is worse than Plan 9. <laughs> Wait, you gave this space? two and a half. Is that what you did, Dave? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, two and a half. Cool. All right. All right. So there we are. Josh. Watch for a better alien invasion movie. Watch Plan <laughs> 9 from Outer Space is what Dave is With saying. just as much narration. So. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of the War of the Worlds. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season finale of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about your audience choice pick, The War of the Worlds. And we've gone through a lot of this already here, the idea that the legacy of this and the legacy of H.G. Wells' novel is just many, many, many adaptations of this story. So Josh, I've looked it up. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, out of the books, there are 59 movies made from his books Wow. And uh, 17 of them were Invisible Man projects and 11 of them were War of the Worlds projects. And of course, we covered the island of Dr. Moreau on uh, here. Oh, right. Of course. That's another one. I I shouldn't have forgotten that. Yeah. I mean, there's like I said, he wrote, I, I think maybe like 50 books or something like that. And there's a small number of them that are the ones that get adapted over and over again. I'm surprised there aren't more versions of the time machine. That seems like the other one. 
I think there are three, it looks like. There's three of them. Okay. So yeah, I mean, and, and this in particular, we we talked a lot already about the 2005 Steven Spielberg film, which is the most famous, I would think, version of this. And I did not watch it again, but Jason, you did. And, and Dave, you did as well, right? And you guys both yeah. liked it a lot. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I liked it better than when we had seen it in the theater. I uh, I did like it. It was good. Um, and, you know, Spielberg, what? Well, you give him aliens, you give him action sequences, and you give him a big movie star, he knows how to make a movie, right? So Yeah. I, if I if I remember correctly, that was like right in the middle of Tom Cruise, the crazy jumping on couch guy. And like, I think maybe we didn't give it the full attention it deserved or something at that point. But, you know, he's redeemed himself now. He's the best. And uh, it's yeah, great. he is the best. Also, the best <laughs> is uh, Spielberg's ability. I don't think he gets enough credit for like, you know, Josh, how like sometimes I'll be like, oh, what an awesome tracking shot. Like we talk about our guy uh, who did. uh atonement joe wright joe he's wright. great yeah he's great at those tracking shots spielberg's amazing at these like kind of full sequence oh, yeah. tracking shots it's a good movie you should check it out uh like i said brave new jersey not as good josh um, yeah i mean and i have seen it i i saw it in the theater and i looked up what i had written at the time and apparently at the time i liked it overall but I liked the first half a lot more than the second half. It sounds like that bit with Tim Robbins that you're describing goes on a long time and I wasn't a fan of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I that's I don't really remember any of that. So one that uh, sounded interesting to me is called The Night That America Panicked. And it's uh 19, it's an ABC movie from 1975, and it was directed by Joseph Sargent. And it was, again, one of these things where it's all about the idea of like uh, people listening to uh, the war of the worlds and then how they just overreact to everything. So Right. And that's another sort of almost subgenre that's an extra step removed from actually adapting the novel. Most recently, there was a TV series that lasted for three seasons starting in 2019 that aired on Epics here in the U.S. It was an international co-production starring uh, Daisy Edgar-Jones and Gabriel Byrne, which I have not watched, but I, I, I had saw, seen some decent reviews for that. So it's interesting, the idea of doing this as this longer form ongoing story. Where does but, Daisy Edgar-Jones get the time to do all these things, man? She must be very efficient because she's in everything. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I haven't watched that show, so I don't know how prominent, but she's like the first listed star of it. So I assume she's the main character there. Yeah, she's good. She's good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe she plays a Martian. I don't know. I didn't watch it. I'm but good with that. Like we're saying, I'm sure there'll be another adaptation of this pretty soon. Related to this film, the TV series from 1988 was ostensibly actually a sequel to this particular film. And Anne Robinson did reprise her role of Sylvia Van Buren in that TV series. And uh, she also showed up as characters named Sylvia Van Buren in a couple of random B movies, which I'm yeah. sure are not directly related. Midnight Movie Massacre and the Naked Monster. There you go. Classics, I'm sure. But, um, you know, both her and Jean Barry, I think, were this is definitely one of the things that they're best known for. So they continue to kind of play on that. As you mentioned, Jason, both of them did have cameos in that 2005 film. Um, Gene Barry has since passed away. He was also known for a lot of TV work. He was the star of Bat Masterson, which I feel like is some sort yeah, of and the like, Atomic City. So. Sounds like a parody as a Western TV series, uh, as well as a, a lawyer show or a cop show or something like that called Burke's Law. 
that lasted for a few seasons in the 60s and then was revived in the 90s. And he starred in it again 30 years later. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, he's making moves. Hey, Josh, I want to see this one from 2019, which is a BBC uh, three-episode miniseries, uh, The War of the Worlds. And it's got Rupert Graves, Harry Melling, Robert Carlyle. This sounds like it could be really Eleanor Timlinson. Like this sounds like, and it's set in like that kind of Victorian England, you know, time period. And I probably in a city, obviously. So I I think that might be a good one to check out. Yeah. I think that had gotten maybe not some great reviews, but the idea of setting it in the actual setting that Wells wrote it in, I think is, is valuable and is something that most of these adaptations don't do. So all of these are probably at least kind of interesting. You know, the story is is obviously very durable. Um, I personally like uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a comic book series by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill in the that that sort of uh, mashes up a lot of classic genre literature together. The second volume of it takes the those main characters and runs them through the story of the War of the Worlds. So the Martians invade and it is set in that era. And the team of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Mina Murray from Dracula and Alan Quatermain and this whole bit, they have to fight off the Martians. And it's a really entertaining version of that before that series kind of went off the rails later on. But that second volume of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, if you're a comic book reader, is very, very good, I think. Of course, Josh, the classic video game Spaced Invaders took uh, uh, part of its design as an homage to this. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of, we mentioned Independence Day that we covered in our previous season and, you know, the influence on every, literally every alien invasion story comes comes from here, I think. Something really interesting that I found that I was looking up because bringing up video games, bringing up Space Invaders, they were making a War of the Worlds video game as a kind of 3D follow-up to Space Invaders and it was never released. It's one of these like classic, legendary unreleased games i would oh, wow. love to see that that would mm. be in 3d like you'd wear the 3d glasses in the 80s or something yeah i don't know if it was like in 3d or if it was using early 3d graphics because it was the 80s when they were making this so uh yeah i don't know but that that sounds really cool yeah space invaders of course jason said spaced invaders which i think is the stoner movie about actually that's what i meant yeah, the space in- i meant the movie space invaders where the martians <laughs> land in a small town as the night that the broadcast is going on. So maybe I'm still from... hating that movie. Yeah, it was terrible. Was but that that did take place <laughs> when the broadcast, the, the pod is that takes place when the broadcast is going on and everything. So, yeah, well, I, I just messed up my own uh, research. There is what I'm talking about. No, that's that's good. It's yeah, but that movie's terrible. So. Yeah, well, I will. I will not watch that. Then. But Josh, I wanted to bring up because I mentioned him a little earlier there. You know, we're mentioning all these people and then you get like you mentioned Les Tremaine, who's in like the Radio Hall of Fame and Ann Robinson, who was on Dragnet. It's these guys have had such cool careers. And then you get to Paul Freeze and he is like basically Mel Blanc and then Paul Freeze as far as like the voices of cartoons from everything from like Rankin Bass and Walt Disney. Uh, pretty cool stuff. He played Boris Badenoff in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. and. He also uh, narrated movies like Manchurian Candidate and Patton. But I thought um, especially fitting of our 1953 season because we covered the wild one and where they talk about how bad counterculture can be. He made a movie called The Beatniks 
about how bad the beat generation can be. <laughs> yeah, watch out for yeah. those beatniks. So, yeah, that's very cool. Um, I wasn't aware that he plays the radio reporter here. Obviously, has a great radio voice. So uh, it's not surprising that he did so much voice acting. Jason, you talked about Byron Haskins' career here, going on to make more sci-fi films. Um, I did want to shout out one of his film noir movies with Lizbeth Scott called Too Late for Tears, which is just an absolutely great, great, like dark film noir that I recommend and has the great line where the 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 main characters, after they first pull off their their initial like robbery, they say, here's to crime. It pays. And they like toast yeah. to crime. And I just I, I don't know. I love that. Yeah. Movie. So nice. Um, that's that's my contribution about Byron Haskin. Um, George Powell, as as we were saying, produced and directed a bunch of uh, sci-fi films in the 50s and 60s, including the adaptation of The Time Machine from 1960 that he both produced and directed. And just a random little trivia bit, I do love Mystery Science Theater 3000, and the main villain in that is named Dr. Clayton Forrester, after Dr. Clayton Forrester here, even though he's not a villain here, so I'm not really sure exactly what the connection is, but they use the name at least. It is a good, like, professory name, I suppose. Yeah, it's a good name. Yeah. 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 All right. So anything else about the legacy of this film that you want to mention, Jason? Josh, the video game Space Invaders <laughs> also highly influenced by this. Thank you for that. <laughs> I bet. Was there a video game adaptation of that movie? It could exist. So. Mm, not not yet, but I think, you know, maybe, sure. maybe down the line. I like that game, Dave. That was always a fun game to play. Space oh, Invaders? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basic. I feel like that's my level of video game play is playing something like that. Like I can do Space Invaders. And yeah. more complex than that is beyond me. <laughs> so that is the War of the Worlds. And that is this episode and this season of Awesome Movie Year. You can fire ray guns at us online and on social media. <laughs> that's the sound of me about to plug our social media i'm at jason harris comedy on facebook and instagram j harris comedy on twitter i have a new website eat this comedy it's coming along it's still in the beta but we'll get there um and then of course uh, my old website go for uh, jason was disintegrated by aliens so that's nice uh awesome still has a uh our SS feed, and that's wonderful. We're on also Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and uh, Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, as long as Elon Musk doesn't ban us. <laughs> uh, I have some old stuff at joshbellhateseverything.com and newer things at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about on the show. And here, too. So if you have any thoughts on the War of the Worlds, bring them there. And uh, what is in our next episode, Jason? Well, Josh, we got the epilogue coming up where we always announce the next season. So stay tuned to hear about all the movies we didn't watch that I would have hated and also... <laughs> what we're going to do next. So tune in next time for our 1953 epilogue. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.